last time we, we spoke, we talked about the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. I mocked the idea that anyone might struggle with the, <laughs> the idea of a virgin birth. Once again, what did I say? I basically said, look, in a universe where God is the creator, it's not unreasonable to think that a child could be born to a woman without her knowing a man. Um, now, I want to talk about the birth of Jesus, though. By the way, I'm sitting this on the table because we don't believe in altars in Presbyterianism. This is not an altar, it's just a table. So uh, the other day the kids were poking around in the baptismal font and I'm happy to let them look around in there and see this is just normal water. Uh, I want everybody to see the ordinariness of everything. So I'm going to use that table to hold my coffee and I'm giving a theological justification for that. So yeah, very important. Um, So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth, but he's born in Bethlehem. This is something that's predicted in Micah 5, 2 to 5. Scripture very careful to spell out the birthplace of the Messiah. Uh, What is significant about Bethlehem besides the fact that it's predicted? What's the significance of Bethlehem? That's right. it's It's the city of David. It's David's city. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? House of Bread. Yeah, House of Bread. What a great name. I just feel like there's a Lord's Supper connection somewhere in there. Um, but the event that brings Jesus' family to Bethlehem is a census by Caesar Augustus in Luke 2.1. I've got this like weird obsession with reading uh, ancient history, and I'm like working my way through a book about Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar at the same time. It seems like you should just do Julius Caesar, then do Caesar Augustus. Um, it's amazing to me just what villainous people uh, God used to create the world that brings Jesus to this hometown. Um, and he does. He uses the, the census of Caesar Augustus. So he go, they go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Let's talk about the birth of Jesus in terms of date. When was Jesus born? Let's crowdsource this one. 4 BC. All right, we got a 4 BC from somebody. All right, well, we, we know it's December 25th. Right? Duh, of course. Any other, any other takers for the year? I thought it was December 25th, zero. See, and there's no year zero. Charlie and I were having this whole conversation in Roman numeral. Roman, Roman doesn't have a number zero. In the, Yeah, these are traditions, but we don't really have uh, we don't really have a way of knowing uh, where when Jesus is born. We know that the traditions develop later in terms of when he's born, but we don't particularly know his birthday. Uh, but here's the question, though: you know, the the numbering of our calendar. And by the way, if you're not a nerd, you won't enjoy what's about to happen. Um, so you gotta like tap into the nerd part of you to enjoy this. But Jesus is not born in 1 AD, right? That's what you would think, right? The year of our Lord, 1, clearly the year Jesus is born. That's clearly the intention of the, the calendar. Um, why wasn't Jesus born in 1 AD? Well, we know Jesus wasn't born in 1 AD because Matthew and Luke both say Jesus was born during the reign of Herod. And Herod died in 4 BC. So Josephus confirms Herod died in 4 BC. There's really not, I don't think historically speaking, there's not a, 
a question that Herod died then, which means he had to be born before 4 BC, right? Because he's during the reign of Herod. It doesn't say he died at the end of the reign of Herod, so that would be 4 BC, but if, you know, it could be any time during Herod's reign. And so what that means is he actually could have been born anytime between 7 and 4 BC. Um, <clears throat> what this means, though, is that our calendar, which was developed by a 6th century monk, I'm going to write his name because it's so great. Do we know what year the census was taken? Uh, I don't think so. That would be really helpful. But and, and if we did, then that would be how we date it. But we don't know. The <clears throat> um, so Dionysus Exegus, and I might be saying his name wrong, and it turns out there are actually two U's in his name, just in case you say his name wrong. Um, he miscalculates the birth of Jesus by at least four years. So here's what happens. Before, by, by the way, if anyone knows this better than me and is a real, like, next level nerd, you want to come up and just do this next part? Super cool. I'm happy to let you do that. So before Dionysus is born, or before his time, the calendar that was used was called the Julian calendar, and it's called the Julian calendar because it's created by Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar sees a problem in the way that Rome is is doing their dates. What are they doing? They're dating from the day that Rome is supposedly founded. But you'd, everybody knows that a city, that Rome is never built in a day, right? So you have this weird, vague question of when is, when is Rome actually built? When is Rome actually finished? And you have all these weird, these, the, the numbering system is highly imprecise. Caesar understands this. And so... Um, this was a way for them to sort of to try to try to correct it. Well, the problem is that even Julius Caesar's uh, t- dating of the calendar um, is not quite right. And so Dionysus says, look, here he is. He's in the 600, 600 BC or uh, sorry, AD. And he says, look, we need a solution. We need a way to number the calendar. And so he says, what if we do this for technical reasons? Let's start the calendar at a set date and let's calculate everything from that set date and we'll just move the, we'll just number the calendar in both directions. And then he said we should call it the year of our Lord because of the birth of Jesus. I'll give you this quote from Dionysus. Dionysus, by the way, this guy's important to me because it's the reason why we live in the year 2022. He's he made a, a decision 600 years, you know, in 600 AD that still affects how we count time today. And so he, he said this, he wanted the date to date the year from the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ in order that the beginning of our hope should be known to us and the cause of our recovery, that is the passion of our Redeemer should shine forth more clearly. So basically he's saying every time someone says the year, they should be filled with hope. Every time you say the year, you should have hope in your heart because a savior has come. And that number is a testimony to the arrival of Jesus in this world. I like it. I like it. Um, Here's the problem, though. Dionysus, very well-meaning man, he miscalculated. And he miscalculated because he either misinterpreted some, he either miscalculates the the year of Jesus' birth or he misreads some document with the name of the Roman rulers at the time. So it's possible that what happens is he's got the date wrong for the reign of Herod. And because he has the date wrong for the reign of Herod, he gets the date wrong for the birth of Jesus. 
So, so yeah, Jesus is potentially born between 7 and 4 BC. Um, just a little more. We don't use Dionysus' calendar either. Um, what happened was, turns out Dionysus didn't realize, really calculate the leap years right. And so in 1582, Pope Gregory institutes a new calendar, which is basically Dionysus' calendar, except they calculate the leap years right. And by the way, the, Saudi Arabia just adopted the Gregorian calendar in 2016. It took that long for them to be like, fine, we'll do it, you know. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, also, this, this date change was authorized at the Council of Trent, which is the only nice thing you'll ever hear me say about the Council of Trent. <laughs> so, uh, so when we get to church history and we'll get to the Council of Trent part, you'll know why I say all these mean things about the Council of Trent. Um, by the way, this... This also meant that Protestants were very slow to adopt the Gregorian calendar. So for a while, Roman Catholics are going on a different time. And the dates you start to see over the years start to drift. But the problem was everybody started noticing that like the, like the spring was coming earlier and earlier every year. And they realized that the Gregorian calendar was actually right. And so after a while, they, they like kind of gave up and, and gave it, and gave so it over. CE and BCE uh, created and who created that? I do not know common where. Era? What's that? Oh, or common era? Yeah, I don't know when people started saying before common era and common era. I just always assume that I know their worldview when they use that. Right, yeah, that. Yeah, a <laughs> um, or at least they want to be taken serious by the academy, so we got to say the BCE. Um, all right. Oh, yeah, so Protestants, though, very slow to take it up because it's, a Roman Catholic, it's viewed as a Roman Catholic thing. But actually, you know, even Roman Catholics know how to do ma- mathematics. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, all that is to say your enjoyment of the last five to 10 minutes is directly proportional to how nerdy you are. So I'm going to just move on from that, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, those poor folks uh, on the podcast, we'll see what, what they think of this. So, so sometime during their stay in Bethlehem, not necessarily the night they arrive, Jesus is born, you know, it's just the way people think of the birth of Jesus. So influenced by art very influenced by nativity scenes. Um, we were having, well, actually, I won't get to this just yet. But um, so we imagine, right, this young man and young woman on a donkey. They roll into to Bethlehem. They arrive. It's snowing, of course. There's probably a Christmas tree in the background somewhere. And there's, there's, there's panic because she's about to have the baby. And so they're knocking on all the doors. They're knocking on the door of the inn. Everyone's like, get out of here. No room for Jesus. And that's sort of what we imagine. And we probably shouldn't imagine that because them, people arriving for the census is a very large event. It's a lot of people all converging in this one place. You know, It would be like if my hometown, Stafford, Kansas, I got to throw Stafford in every now and then. Stafford, Kansas had a rule that you had to come back every 30 years. Well, that place would turn into a big party once a year. No one goes there for anything except to go back there for this big party, you know, once every few years. Then the place would suddenly become very happening. And because of the census, they arrive and there's nowhere for them to stay. Now, if you read the Greek text, it isn't what you think of as an inn. So the text in Luke, I'm just going to read it and then I'll have a few comments about it. So it says, while they were there, this is Luke 2, 6 6 to 7. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths 
and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So I'm usually not one to take issue with the translators of scripture, um, but the word in is not what Luke uses here. Luke uses the word in in Luke 10.34 to talk about where the Samaritan put up the man who was beaten on the road. And it says that he paid to have this man stay at an inn. This doesn't use that. This uses a broader word. This text actually just says lodging place. So it says there was no lodging place. So it's not just that there's no inn, there's no house either. Um, probably what happens is they, Joseph goes back to Bethlehem and what is this town? This is his family town. And so he's going to probably have family there who have homes, but they clearly don't have enough room for him and for Mary and for this child. And so he do, it's not that he doesn't stay at an inn, it's that he doesn't stay anywhere. He has no shelter. He has no, no place to have this. They have no place to have this child. And so... Um, the fact that Luke uses the word in later on means that he knows the word and he uses the specific word for ends. Um, again, he's using a broader term here. So they get turned away from their family house. They probably, if there are any uh, ends also that would be included in the lodging places, they get turned away from there as well. And so he has to stay somewhere. They have to have this baby. The baby's coming. And so they're forced outdoors like probably a lot of other people were at the time. So what does this look like? It probably looks like a courtyard on the side of a house, or it could even be a place in the street in front of the house. Because if you look at the way that, that, uh, that uh, ancient, in ancient times, they did not have a stable. There's a stable in the narrative. Where do we get the stable from? Why do we picture them being in a stable? Yeah, we think... Well, you've got to keep the livestock under some kind of roof, right? You can't let the livestock be out and about. They must have some kind of, of uh, stable that they're staying in. Well, think about, think about why we think that Jesus stayed in a stable. There's no stable in the text. But if you look at a lot of the art that gave rise to nativity scenes, where are they predominantly from? It's artwork that's coming from European artists, right? People who live in a colder, wetter climate than Israel, right? These Europeans, you know, you've got Norwegians going, well, you've got to keep your animals in a shelter, <laughs> you know, and they're drawing their art for us. And people who are used to sheltering their animals do that. But what is the climate in Israel like? Summers gets about 80 degrees. Winter times get to about 40. Uh, until the forest fires here, that's basically Portland weather, right? And not only that, but it's a lot drier. So it's not raining nearly as much as it is here. So, you know, get out of your heads the idea that there's like a stable that Jesus is in. Now, it's possible because they did have stone stables that they found around 400 BC. But around this time, they were unusual. They were not the norm. And so very likely what happens is Jesus is born somewhere. He may, we, we don't exactly know the location where he's born, but what happens? He's laid in a manger. Typical place for a manger in Israel at that time would have been actually in front of the house next to the street. So that would be where you would actually put your animal. You'd hitch them to the manger so they would stay there. They wouldn't run off and they'd be sort of attached to where they could eat. And that's probably where Jesus is laid. He's in some kind of uh, food trough, basically. So the word manger is a feeding trough is what I've heard. Mm -hmm. uh, so would that kind of imply that maybe it's a stable because animals are feeding and well, yeah, I'm no, I'm no expert. 
So everything I am saying, I'm, I'm learning from other books. So the books that I have read indicate that the manger would be in front of the house and that multiple animals could be tied to that manger and they could eat from it. Um, it could be. It's not in the text. We have to, yeah, all of this is me going, maybe our visions of the cozy nativity are a little romanticized. That might be my way of trying to put it that way. Um, so the only thing Luke really tells us is there's nowhere for him to be born that's reasonable. There's no indoor location. So he's born, he's laid in a manger. You know, the idea is what is that really communicating about Jesus? humble, right? He doesn't come born in the palace of a king. He's not born in a large fancy building like we know Jesus deserved to be. He deserved to have this royal arrival and he gets nothing of the sort. Instead, it's just a very humble uh, uh, scene that he's born into. Uh, in a very backwater part of the world, in a little town that people only come back to when the government makes them go back. And we know how reluctant people are when the government makes them do things. Uh, especially Jewish people back then. So um, we also have the visit of the shepherds uh, that are indicated in the text. Luke, Luke tells us that the birth of Jesus is announced to shepherds. Now, again, the shepherds are the dirty men. The shepherds are the people that you're not excited to have around. They're the people that when they come into town, everyone kind of steps to the other side of the road as they walk by, that sort of thing, um, because they're working outdoors. They're working with animals. They have a gross job. Uh, they're seen as, as dirty people. And even people in Israel, you know, they have their standards. And so they, they, the, the humblest people probably in all of Israel are the ones who receive the message uh, announcing Jesus' birth. Uh, Matthew tells us about wise men coming from the east. You know, we, we always think it's three. Could be way more. Could be way less. Or could be, could be two instead of three. We don't really know. But we know they brought three gifts. Um, often I've preached on the, the birth, uh, the arrival of the wise men. And there's symbolism in their gifts. There are, you know, some of it is uh, funeral um, spices. So, uh, um, some of it is royal. Uh, all of the gifts seem to have some sort of prophetic element to them, indicating who Jesus is and what his fate's going to be. Um, they did not arrive on the night of Jesus' birth. It says by the time they arrived, Mary and Joseph are living in a house. So they're not, in the, they're not laying him in a manger still by the time that the three wise men arrive. Uh, Herod tries to kill children ages two and below, indicating the arrival of wise men was at least a couple years after Jesus' birth, probably. Uh, you have the threat of Herod to kill young children in Bethlehem. What does that do to Joseph and Mary? They flee to Egypt. They're like, we got to get out of here. And then once Herod's son Archelaus becomes ruler of Judea, they, they're living back in Nazareth. Again, a very small town, backwater town, disrespected town. Once Jesus starts ministering, you have people like, is it Nathaniel? Is it Nathaniel who says, what good can come out of Nazareth? Um, that's the sort of town where Jesus grows up and where he lives. He comes from the low places in Israel, the place that people aren't excited to go to. No one's, no one's booking exciting vacations to go visit Nazareth. Um, family life. Jesus has four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He's got at least two sisters. We don't know all of them, but we know he's got... At one point, two of his sisters arrived, but we don't know if that's definitive or not. So he's got six siblings. Now, Roman Catholics think that these six siblings are not siblings. 
They think they are cousins. Why do they think that these are cousins? Yeah. All right. But but why do they think from the text that Mary that these are that these are cousins? You are all speechless. I'm proud of you. <laughs> there is nothing in the text indicating they are cousins. So in the Greek, there's a word for cousin. The word cousin gets used in scripture. The word sibling is what's used here. So the word anepsois is the word for cousin. It's a, it's a specific word. That is not the word that gets used. The word that gets used for the siblings is adelphos. Now, you guys know the word adelphos, right? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? But that adelphos is, is, says something. They're brothers. And so, um, you know, he intentionally uses the word for, for brother, not cousin. These are brothers. These are sisters, so would that make Mary, uh, make Mary uh, less special in the Catholic view if, if she actually had you know, children naturally? There is, a, there is a specific aspect of Roman Catholic understanding of sin that in the Roman Catholic mindset, if Mary actually had sex, it would dirty her. It would sully her. It would be... Because you, you see how this view of, of uh, perpetual virginity of, um, why did I just forget the word for someone who stays a, a virgin all their life? Why did I just forget that? Celibate. Cel- thank you. I don't know why my brain just skipped that word. They have a high view of celibacy. Even you know, around the 400s, you have people being praised for living a celibate life. Everyone's talking about them like they're braver than everyone else, like they're sacrificing more than everyone else. And that belief becomes very common. In fact, it's still common today, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're living a celibate life, then you must be giving something up. And Paul says, look, if you're living a celibate life and it's costing you something, then it means you need to get married, right? Paul, Paul has this mindset so that the people who are celibate, who have the gift of celibacy, are people who aren't sacrificing anything that everybody else isn't sacrificing because they don't have the strong desire for sexual union with somebody, and somebody who does have that desire, Paul says they should get married. Um, so what happens in the Roman Catholic tradition, though, is there's this, there's this belief that somehow you're sacrificing something more. You are more holy if you're saying no to sex. And they think they can't even imagine the thought that Mary might have actually had sex with her own husband, which I think that, may, that would make her a bad wife. I think that would make I don't think it would make her a loving wife. I want to go to the Roman Catholics and be like, was Mary a good wife or not? And I want to have that conversation. Um, did she love her husband? Like, um, it's a thing being influenced by by Greek philosophy. Yeah, the, the sort of physical is in itself. Physical's bad. Denial of the physical's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we just need to we need to understand that when we start to praise and love certain things, that actually sows seeds that sometimes show up later on in our churches. Um, I think that's why we need to have a healthy understanding of the human body, of human sexuality. We need to talk in a healthy way about it. And we need to do that so that later on we don't have, I don't know, nasty side effects arise. And I think this is one of those because you don't get the perpetual virginity of Mary from the text. You certainly don't get it from the way the language speaks of her children. Uh, By all intents and purposes, these are her kids. And she had them with Joseph. Um, I remember listening to a debate with, between James White. Raise your hand if you know who James White is. I'm just 
Some people, okay, we got a few. Uh, James White used to debate Roman Catholics a lot. And um, I remember he did a debate either with Jerry Mattatix or Robert Singenis, both Roman Catholic. I think they were priests, but they're at least Roman Catholics. And they were defending the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I remember I'd listened to a lot of debates, but I never heard a debate that got the other person got completely destroyed when he's giving his introduction. He, he gave every single argument they were going to bring up and he just beat them, beat all the arguments in the introduction and left them with nothing. So it was like really humiliating because you're thinking, how are they going to go through the rest of the, the debate? And they just pretended he didn't say the introduction. They just pretended. They just went right past it. Um, you should be able to look it up on YouTube. Just look up Jerry, James White, Perpetual Virginity of Mary, and you'll probably find the debate. It's like back in the 90s, and I think he was bigger. I think he looked like me back then, um, except he was bald. Anyway, the biblical case is not there for uh, Mary having no children. Uh, rather, Jesus has brothers and sisters. I take it for granted. Sorry. Um, so here's what happens, though. He's got an earthly father named Joseph, but Joseph disappears from the narrative after Jesus' birth. The only thing we, we hear is later he's mentioned as being uh, Matthew thirteen fifty five refers to Jesus as a carpenter, uh, and another place in Scripture refers to him as a carpenter's son. So that, is, that little reference there is the only further taste I think that you find in the text at all of Joseph. He's just, he's just not there after his birth. What's that? Temple. When he went in the temple. That's right. Yeah, so he, he is there still when they go to the temple. And then I think that's the last trace of Joseph. Um, what happens? Jesus learns the family trade from his father. He becomes a carpenter as well. Mark 6.3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Jesus is a guy who has a job. He learns a trade. Back then, you would have learned the trade from your father. You're not going to a special school to learn these things. You're just, you're just picking them up from your dad. Um, one early church tradition, and you never know with these traditions whether they're true, was that the um, 100 years after Jesus' birth, there is still furniture that was made by Joseph's family that was in circulation and supposedly of quite excellent build. Uh, is that true? I have no idea. Uh, we wouldn't want to base a biblical doctrine on it. So we just think it's interesting, right? It's, it's interesting to consider. So Joseph dies before Jesus' public ministry. I don't think that's a controversial thing to suggest, but we don't have it, his death listed. Uh, possibly late enough to leave an impression on his son, teaching the family trade, and have six other children. So who knows how long Joseph is in Jesus' life for. Um, Joseph and Mary are pious Jews. We learn a few things about them from the text. We learn that they observe the law. We know that they're uh, careful to observe the law. Uh, they have Jesus circumcised. We know that they're relatively poor. How do we know that? It's not because of the town they live in. It's because of what happens in Luke 2.24, when they go to the temple and what happens? They offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And if you read Leviticus 12, 8, that is offered as the offering of a poor person. So if you're, if you're not rich, if you're not able to bring a bigger sacrifice, then they say you can at least bring two, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And that's exactly what Joseph and Mary do. They're very, they're very careful to observe the law. They, they're not rebels uh, living in Israel and trying to, you know, live some other kind of life. This is them trying to live before the face of God each day and show their son to do the same and all their other children, of course. 
Um, Jesus would have been educated in a synagogue. He would have learned the scriptures. He would have learned the Hebrew language. There, was a, there would have been in the synagogue a great big, a large emphasis on scripture memorization. We know from later on that Jesus can quote large portions of scripture. He knows it well. He's committed this book to memory. It wasn't unusual in the ancient world for people to memorize books of the Bible. Uh, you Again, you have a, a, a culture where people are not reading constantly and they're not producing books constantly. Instead, reading and writing are the purview of the wealthy, of those who are highly educated, of those who are in the elite uh, stratosphere of society. That's who's doing these things. Your average person, somebody with poor parents like Jesus, is probably a memorizer. That's probably how what he's doing. He's dedicating himself. He's hearing the scriptures read and then he's going over it again in his head. And he's memorizing it like that. Um, he could read Hebrew. We know this because in Luke 4, 16, what does he do? He opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it. So we do know that he's capable of reading. Uh, he is probably trilingual. He's speaking Aramaic, which is the everyday speech of somebody living in Israel. He also is speaking Hebrew because he can read the scriptures and he can read them aloud. And almost certainly he can speak Greek as well because that's the business that's the government language. That's the language you use when you're living your secular life. And, you know, you are living around Roman soldiers. There are times when Romans are coming to him and they're making requests. They're probably speaking Greek. That's the language that they're talking. It wouldn't be unusual if there was also Latin because, of course, you may be surrounded by Latin soldiers who are talking to each other in Latin, potentially, or Greek. You never know. So you have a lot of languages rattling around in his head. He knows a great deal. Um, smarter than me, smarter than you. He, but he's also got a mind, just like us. He's got a human mind. Um, <clears throat> at an early age, he seems to have this special sense. God is his father. You see this when he goes to the temple. Um, you know, thinking of God as your father might seem normal in Christian culture. We might talk about God as our father, but you should know that before the time of Jesus, it is not a normal way of talking about God. It's not something you find in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, here's where you see people talking about God as father. God talks about Israel as though Israel is his child. That's where you see God being father. God is a father to Israel. But if you went to an individual Jewish person uh, living in that time and you say, is God your father? They, they might they might grudgingly say, sure, I guess that makes sense or something like that, but they're not going to reflexively talk about God that way. Instead, God is a father to Israel. He cares for his people. Um, you would think of it more in a community way than you would in an individual way. So when Jesus comes, Jesus starts speaking of God as his father. You know, he goes to the temple. He says, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Right? I had to be in my father's house. And you can just see his parents, like the reaction that they must have had. Um, so when he's young, he's got this very growing awareness that he has a special relationship with God. So the beginning of, wow, that's not one of the race. So the beginning of Jesus's ministry, uh, it ironically doesn't begin with him. It doesn't begin with him preaching. Instead, it begins with his cousin, John the Baptist, who was a, a herald of the Messiah. So it starts with him. He's living in the wilderness. Uh, he's a wild figure. He's wearing camel skin. He's wearing a leather belt. Uh, the same outfit that Elijah wore in 2 Kings 1.8. He's eating locusts. He's eating honey. Um, 
typical appearance of an ascetic in Israel. Remember, an ascetic is just somebody who denies the body, and that's what he's doing. He's living in the desert. That's not a place of comfort, right? The desert is not that kind of thing. So John begins preaching around 30 AD. We know this because Luke says John's ministry began the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius Caesar became emperor in 14 AD. That would make 29 or 30 AD the beginning of John's ministry with Jesus beginning his ministry shortly after. So because we date John's ministry, we can date when Jesus' ministry starts. Uh, Luke says that Jesus was about 30 years old. That's the language Luke uses. He was about 30 years old. Uh, he's not, he doesn't say it precisely. He says he's about 30. That's in Luke 3.23. So if Jesus is born in... 7 to 4 BC, uh, then Jesus would have been 33 to 36 years old when his ministry begins. It's so much math. So much math. Um, That's when Jesus starts. John's message, before Jesus arrives, before Jesus is baptized, John is out there preaching. He preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's warning people to repent because the judgment of God is coming. Um, He's baptizing people in the river. Um, the, this would have been a purification ceremony. Baptism appeared in Judaism in the ancient world. Jesus didn't invent baptism. John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. Uh, it was normal for Jewish people to call upon one another and even to call for repentance using washing, using language of washing, using language of purification. They would say, purify yourselves, wash yourselves. And that's what John is doing. So, It may have had some, there may have been to the people in Israel at this time, this would have been a special thing, but it's not the first time that they're washing one another uh, for the forgiveness of sins and in in terms of repentance, in terms of having a new start. Um, What is Jesus, what is John the Baptist doing that's unique in that respect then? What John's doing that's unique is he's warning them that there is a savior coming, that there's a Messiah coming, one who, whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie. So he's pointing ahead and he's saying, get ready, the savior is coming. He's setting the stage. You know, we call John the forerunner because he's, he's going ahead and he's saying, look, there's a king coming, there's a king coming. Look, here he comes. And that's John's work. And so as he's at the river and as he's baptizing, Jesus comes to be presented for baptism. And that's the cliffhanger. When we come back on next week, we'll talk about the baptism of Jesus and what it means, why he's baptized, um, what the significance of it is. We'll get to that next week. Let me pray and then we'll get out of here in time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son came and lived among us as a real person with a real body, with a real human mind and a a soul. We thank you that he really lived as one of us. God, we praise you for that because through him we have redemption, forgiveness from sins. Lord, all of the blessings that you have for us in Christ. And so we pray that as we go this week that we would walk in gratitude that your son has actually stood on this earth that he looked up at the same moon and the same sun that we look up at. Uh, We thank you that he really did walk among us, that he walked and that he lived a humble life, that he didn't live as a glorious king, but rather as a humble servant. We thank you, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.